Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Engine Rescue 58242, going to be a 9 Echo 1, 30-year-old male. They say he is not conscious, not breathing. CPR instructions are being given. Echo 1, Engine Rescue 5. Hello and welcome everybody. This is episode four of the AFR podcast. Today we're going to be talking about some exciting new technology. We have a ECMO episode. If you are unfamiliar with ECMO, that makes two of us. So this episode will explain all the ins and outs of it. Uh, what I do know is that I'm pretty excited um, to be a part of this EMS system, which is on uh, the, the cutting edge of trying out new things. You all know that we currently implement pit crew CPR. You've all seen the Lucas device, our mechanical compression device that we're implementing in the field. And you might not know this, but our 7.8s are carrying uh, ultrasound around for use in the field. And ECMO is just one more step, which is allowing our system to have some great numbers in terms of uh, resuscitation rates. Today I'm joined by Dr. Pruitt, our medical director, once again, and we also have Dr. Brody from UNM joining us today. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Andrew. Super excited to be here. Um, love to get a chance to brag about our resuscitation in our system and the fantastic things that we're doing for the citizens and visitors of Albuquerque um, who undergo cardiac arrest. I think we're really leading the way in resuscitation, and it's exciting to see. And Dr. Brody, welcome. Um, I've seen your name the entire nine years that I've been a part of AFR, and it's nice to have a chance to speak with you. I appreciate that. Uh, always good to, to support a great system, and particularly excited to, to talk about this uh, new ECMO technology. Okay, so let's start right there. Can you explain, uh, just a broad sense, what is ECMO? So ECMO, uh, the abbreviation is of a mouthful here it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation so basically oxygenating the blood outside the body uh, the other terms you may hear you may hear extracorporeal life support but what you also will hear a lot is ecpr and this is not uh quite the same uh, e that we have in in other aspects of our life the e is standing for using ecmo um, for for CPR. And so basically, I mean, this is very equivalent to what people are aware of happening when they go for open heart surgery and they go on the, on people say bypass or they'll say the heart lung machine. But basically, much like dialysis, we take the blood out of the body and we clean it and put it back in. Um, for ECMO, we're pulling the blood out of the body, adding oxygen, removing CO2, and putting it back in and we also have so we have the option of just putting it back in or putting it back in with pressure so that it's uh, actually doing the function of both the lungs and in that case the function of the heart so um, pretty amazing and this is something that used to just be restricted uh, to the operating room area or maybe the ICU and now as the technology is improving and the the ability to um, put these the cannulas that are required that we could talk about 
in a little bit easier. Um, this is expanding, and now we're you know we're here talking about uh, doing this in the emergency department and and how the EMS system is part of that. Dr. Pruitt, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, it is super exciting to be able to um, to be part of this. Our system has been setting itself up for this kind of process over the last couple years by um, doing really good pit crew CPR. And then the purchase of the Lucas devices is really the pivotal piece in being able to identify these patients and get them on the um, eCPR pump. Because of the Lucas devices being so readily available on the rescues, it's going to make our transport of these patients a lot safer for our crews and also um, be able to provide effective CPR, which is a huge piece for patients um, while we're getting them to the ECMO um, facility or the cannulators. So from what I understand, all of these things that we've been doing over the last several years are contributing to improved circulation prior to the patient getting to the hospital and which allows for ECMO. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. I mean, at the end of the day, the patients that are going to do the best are going to be the patients that uh, respond to the initial interventions that EMS is is doing every day. So the you know the the early response, the CPR, that early defibrillation. That's those are the, still the patients. Nothing has changed. Those are the patients that are going to have the best outcome. Are the ones that you all um, will have back. You know, talking before they get to the hospital. Uh, but this is for uh, this is to try to expand that to some people that aren't fortunate enough to respond to that early intervention, but still give some of them an additional chance. Thanks. Okay, so you mentioned that this technology has existed in operating rooms, and you also mentioned uh, maybe the equipment is becoming smaller. Um, is that what's allowing it to be uh, take place in the ER now? Um, and then with that question, can you talk about UNM specifically, UNM's ECMO program, some of the statistics that exists with that program? Well, I mean, I think you're right. There's more. I mean, it's actually, you're absolutely spot on that the equipment is, um, is getting smaller, and that is absolutely part of it. Um, the, so there's a pump that's involved in this, and having something that is transportable and can move around the hospital easily is important, and having it affordable enough is important. But the, um, to perform ECMO, you have to when you're taking the blood out and putting it back in, you're, you're taking this you're out of big vessels, and you really are required to put in remarkably large, I mean, if you think about you know, the you know, IV catheter on, on steroids becomes a central line. Well, a central line on steroids becomes one of these um, ECMO uh, cannulas or catheters that you hear talked about. And these things are, people joke about them being the size of a garden hose, but they actually are. And so... Um, having the, this is something that used to be restricted to uh, only vascular surgeons really were the ones that would put these in. But as the uh, technology has improved, it's gotten, it's expanded, um, there's the ability for other people to do this. And UNM is one of the centers that's leading the way by having ICU physicians, uh, not surgeons, but ICU critical care physicians uh, place these uh, catheters, or what we often you hear people say, cannulate patients. Uh, and so by having, you know, the surgeons, there's a very limited pool of people that are available to come in and 
do that in a timely manner, but we have ICU physicians in the hospital 24-7 at, at the university. So it's that combination of the technology and having these people, uh, more people available to do it that's made us able to, to offer this up. The one thing I should say about the UNM Adult ECMO program, which is relatively new, I should, I, I need to give props to, since I'm kind of representing um, Dr. Marinaro, who's the director of that program and couldn't be here today, the, the ECMO program at UNM really began in the pediatric ICU, in the pediatric world, um, and they've been leading the way for, for decades, and a lot of it came around about hantavirus. And so it's only in the last you know, couple years that this has expanded at UNM into um, just being an extensive uh, adult program and to be doing things you know, beyond patients like Hanta. Dr. Pruitt, can you speak about the success of this program so far and just in general the su success of our uh, resuscitation rates within Albuquerque? Yes. So um, if you look at the statistics of ECMO over the last 10 years, the number of academic centers that are performing ECMO has almost doubled. Um, there's about 6,000 centers nationwide that are doing it now, mostly academic. And um, they're all, of course, keeping records of patient outcomes. And when UNM compares their patient outcomes to national average, the national average of um, patients who go on the pump and undergoing eCPR, national average is 29% of those patients will walk out of the hospital neurologically intact. The exciting news about UNM patients is right now we've been doing this in the hospital for about two and a half years now, and the number of UNM patients who walk out of the hospital neurologically intact is 43%. Wow, that's exciting. It really is exciting. And it was just the last thing I would add before we, you know, move on to the to the specifics that people know need to know for their pre-hospital practice. ECMO is used for patients in cardiac arrest, and that's what's going to be the rest of our discussion uh, today. But it's also used for patients with severe lung issues. Uh, lung rescue is is often referred to, where we're not using it to replace the heart; we're just using it really to replace bad lungs, and so. Um, when we take blood out of the veins, oxygenate it, and, and just put it back into the veins to support the lungs, you'll hear that terminology um, if you're in the ER, in the hospital, as people talk about VV, veno, venous, ECMO. And that's really just supporting bad lungs. Um, if you take the blood out of the veins, oxygenate it, and put it back into an artery with pressure, like I mentioned earlier, where you're actually doing the work of the lungs and the work of the heart as somebody in cardiac arrest would need. Now that's VA, veno-arterial ECMO. And so it, I think it's worth people understanding that distinction because they're going to, you know, in our system, you're going to hear a lot more about these, these patients in the near future. Yeah. And a lot of, I think, our good success rates in identifying these patients and helping them comes down to finding the right patients who are going to benefit, which will lead us into talking about inclusion and exclusion criteria and finding the right candidates because really it comes down to finding the right patient who has the best chance of the outcome is going to help help this program succeed. Yeah, great. So not everybody is a candidate and we're going to explain that in this episode. Um, who would those right patients be, Dr. Brody? Well, I mean, ideally, I mean, we want to we want to find patients that you know are, of course are going to have a good outcome or the best chance of a good outcome from a very complex um, and expensive and invasive procedure. 
that you know has risks involved with it. And so we're looking for um, for patients that have the most likely to have a reversible cause of their cardiac arrest. You know, for example, a patient that has a STEMI and has a occluded vessel that could be opened up. That would be a great example of a reversible cause. But we also want patients um, that are going to be most likely to have their their neurologic function, brain function intact. Um, so it doesn't help us to, you know, put somebody on ECMO and reverse that, um, take them to the cath lab and have that lesion reversed if they were down on the ground without CPR for 20 minutes and their brain was receiving no oxygen. So it's that combination of finding reversible patients most likely to have a reversible cause and most likely to have a good neurological outcome. Some other reversible causes that we think about would be possible um, PE or even hypothermic patients. One of our first um, actual eCPR candidates that came from the field was actually a 32 Bravo um, this January who was down and out outside a, of a church and was very hypothermic and was able to get um, recognized as an eCPR candidate, was cannulated, and I think he walked out of the hospital completely neurologically intact about a week later. Oh, wow. it's amazing. So currently this is being taught at our day one EMS refreshers with an expected rollout in July. Is that correct? That is correct. So we have about 700 people just in AFR alone to train on recognizing these patients. So um, the training has started now. Um, and as crews are getting trained, we're um, actually doing kind of a soft rollout as people start to recognize um, the patients who meet the inclusion criteria um, and don't have any of the exclusion criteria. Um, we can start to recognize them and get to the hospital. Okay, so if we if you've been to day one already, no need to wait until July to try to start implementing the changes. Right. So after the training is complete on day one refresher, you'll be given a checklist with inclusion and exclusion criteria, and can run that list. If you arrive on a scene where you think you have a potentially CPR candidate, we're um, asking people right now until this officially rolls out in July to either call 7-8 just to confirm the criteria or call consortium. Okay. And Dr. Pruitt, can you explain uh, what changes are going to be made within AFR um, from dispatch all the way uh, down the line? Okay. So this is taking a fair amount of coordination behind the scenes, but um, fortunately, dispatch is very enthusiastically supporting this effort as well and is going to help identify, as they're dispatching NINACO candidates, um, they're going to ask several of the inclusion criteria, including age, whether or not the arrest was witnessed and whether or not bystander CPR is going on. And if they recognize those three things, they're going to add to the NINACO dispatch that this is a possible eCPR candidate to kind of get um, everybody's mind in the right spot as they're en route to the scene. Okay, Just so if you were responding to this call um, and say to the officer either on the engine or the rescue responding to this NINACO, um, when dispatch mentions that it's an ECMO candidate, how should they be uh, thinking about that response? Okay, so if I am the rescue officer and I'm thinking I'm going to be the first one on the scene, in my mind, um, 
the rescue officer's job is going to be to get a quick patient history and run through the checklist. And this is a checklist. It doesn't necessarily need to be the paramedic. I would prefer it be the first officer on scene. So the engine officer can do this as well. Um, very important questions are going to be the inclusion criteria. So the minute you get there, as the first in officer, you need to confirm age, whether or not the arrest was witnessed, how long the patient has been down, whether or not they've been getting bystander CPR. In the meantime, the rest of the crew, like we've talked about, the most important thing in this whole thing is preserving that neurological function. So it's the key piece in all of this is going to be fantastic BLS. It's really going to come down to really good pit crew CPR and the rest of the team while the officer is getting this information. What they can be doing and dividing up responsibilities is doing really good pit crew CPR, getting the patient on the monitor. If it's a shockable rhythm, shocking early, and then getting in title on and establishing an airway with the idea that this could be a load and go. So dividing up responsibilities, moving slowly but efficiently, not too fast okay. where we're skipping right. steps. So this is going to go um, along with our current code checklist. You know, one of the the key things that we're thinking about on a code is to limit our breaks in CPR to under 10 seconds. Um, and this is going to be a checklist that's available on the Lucas device, from what I understand. And it's going to be up to the officers to, again, you're kind of uh, coordinating that resuscitation effort. So che checking all those boxes that we care about, uh, minimizing the breaks, you know, shocking, shockable rhythms. And this is going to be a checklist on the Lucas. Yes. So um, every single one of these inclusion criteria that's going to be located inside the Lucas device is going to have to be met. So if the answer is no to any of the inclusion criteria, it's going to be run just like a normal cardiac arrest where we stay on scene until we get ROSC okay. or until the code is terminated. And I would just reemphasize that the, the best chance the patient has is if they get ROSC right away before you know you even get a chance to make them an ECMO candidate. So these things, that's why these things have to, it's so important these things are happening simultaneously and that we don't get focused so much on the eCPR that we, we forget all the incredible progress we've made in our general cardiac arrest, arrest response. Can we get into the specifics on the inclusion and exclusion criteria? Absolutely. So this is the key piece, the inclusion criteria, the patients who are going to be most likely to benefit from eCPR, they must be between the ages of 18 to 75. It has to be a witness arrest with confirmed bystander CPR. When we get on scene, we need the end title to be greater than 10. And right now, any rhythm on the monitor but asystole is a candidate. So if you arrive on scene and the patient's in asystole, they're no longer a candidate. Um, there is one exception with PEA if we happen to have an ultrasound on scene and we do see some cardiac activity, those PEA patients can be transported. But if we do have an ultrasound on scene and they're in PEA and there's no cardiac activity, that's going to change um, the destination and we will stay on scene with PEA patients that don't have cardiac activity on ultrasound. Now that said, if there's no ultrasound available on scene, we're going to treat PEA patients like they do have cardiac activity and count that as a yes. Okay. And then um, 
two very important things lastly would be that the presumed cause of the arrest is something that's reversible so it needs to be either presumed STEMI, presumed PE, or hypothermia. If we're suspecting an underlying hypoxic arrest like a, a drug overdose or a warm water drowning or trauma, those patients will not be candidates because it's all about patients who we think likely will still have some brain function that hasn't been deprived of oxygen for a okay. while. Probably the biggest piece of this whole thing is going to be the timing. Um, every second counts in these eCPR patients. And again, it all comes down to preserving neurological function. And so the biggest determination of the patients that get to go to the hospital is going to be whether or not we can get them to the hospital within 35 minutes of their initial collapse. All right. So Dr. Brody, uh, with the 35 minute uh, time limit, that's going to be a pretty quick turnaround. What are we going to see when we show up to the ER with the ECMO candidate? Well, I mean, what it, if people are used to showing up with, with trauma patients and used to, you know, meeting the entire trauma team in Trauma 1, uh, at least for now, the number of people that are going to meet you actually is going to significantly exceed that trauma number, at least during daytime hours. Um, so uh, that's the first thing you should expect. You're probably not going to roll into Trauma 1. You're going to most likely roll into another bay at UNM, but there are going to be a lot of people there. Uh, this is, um, you know, much like, you know, you can imagine in a trauma patient, we do a resuscitation, but there's always part of the team that's upstairs in the OR that's available if you need them. Well, in this case, all of that procedural stuff is happening right there at the bedside. So it is um, quite, quite chaotic and busy. We... Um, so what's what you know, the reason we have so many people is there's a number of things that have to happen. Um, so you need to we're going to be having you roll that patient in. We're going to kind of direct you to uh, one side of the bed. There's going to be part of the team that's going to be focused on continuing your resuscitation that you've started and getting um, getting some report. Um, but they're really going to be there to make sure we continue to do good ACLS care. The other part of the team is going to be the actual um, ECMO team. And their first priority is going to be getting access uh, in the femoral vein and artery with um, essentially the first step is going to be placing what you'll hear the word called a sheath, which is kind of like that central line. So it's a um, bigger than an IV, but this is not the cannulas. And sometimes people get confused because they see somebody roll in and get these lines placed in their groins and they think they went on ECMO. Um, and that's not the case. So you're going to have people that are there all gowned up in, you know, full kind of OR sterile gowns, a whole bunch of carts with equipment. There's going to be, you know, more than one ultrasound machine now, probably two ultrasound machines. And those people down at the lower end of the patient are only focused on getting access because nothing else can happen with the rest of the procedure unless we can get that access. So they may not be listening to the report. They're going to be really focused on that and everybody else, you know, is kind of the divide and conquer focused on the basic care of the patient. Um, once those vessels go in, those, I'm sorry, those first sheaths go in, then there's a, a bit of a pause where the team can now confer and 
kind of review where we're at in the resuscitation, both the information that you all provided from the field in terms of these important uh, review of inclusion exclusion criteria, but also what's continued to happen with the patient while they've been um, been in the department and getting those sheets in. You know, depending on the patient's anatomy and ultrasound, I mean that can be five minutes or less to get those sheets in, or that can start you know taking 15 minutes. Unfortunately, in some patients, we have to be able to get the patient on the pump within 60 minutes of their initial collapse, not not the call to 911, not the dispatch time, the actual time of collapse. So that's why things are, that's where this 35 minutes comes from to be able to give us a window to do that. Um, but that's also why things are going to be happening so quickly once you, you show up in the department. So once there's the sheaths are in, one in a vein, one in an artery, they might both be on the same leg, they might be on different legs. There's going to be, the team is going to take a bit of a timeout and a pause. And now everybody can sort of confer and they'll review those criteria. If we decide that this is a go and we're going to actually, the terminology will often be, you'll hear people say, okay, are we going to put the patient on? They might say, are we going to put them on pump? You know, are we going on? Um, are we cannulating? Those are all kind of terms that mean the same thing. That's when these um, big cannulas, the garden hoses are fed in um, over through, so we take these sheaths that we had put in, which are actually quite small, then we feed in, um, we continue to dilate up with uh, um, bigger and bigger dilators until you can get the actual, you know, essentially these garden hose catheters or cannulas into the appropriate vessels. Um, once those are in, um, then it's very quick to, um, to actually connect the, the pump. The, the people that help run the pump are called the perfusionists. Um, or the ECMO specialists, and they're there as well, and they're the ones that are actually going to, you know, connect the, you know, connect that part up to the pump, and and turn the pump on. And when you see the pump go, you, all of a sudden you see, you know, this, you know, incredible, you know, dark blood coming out of one side of the body, and you'll see bright red blood getting pumped back in to the other side. And what's interesting is at the point at which the patient goes on pump. Um, we no longer really, you know, necessarily have the same urgency about doing things like defibrillating. So you can have a patient who's in V-fib and we're not shocking under some circumstances. Um, we might not even be ventilating under some circumstances because that's really all taking place uh, through the ECMO machine. Okay. So with the 35-minute timeline, there's going to be quite a few few districts that that's going to be possible. So I can imagine quite a few nine echoes. Um, from dispatch, you're going to expect that they could be a ECMO candidate. Dr. Pruitt, what do you see um, some other potential calls that would be good candidates for ECMO? Um, that's a great question, Andrew. I think just by the limitations of the 35-minute downtime from initial collapse, um, that's going to really narrow the window of who can get that patient to the hospital in time based on their district. Although I have been surprised before over the last uh, several weeks, we've had one potential candidate come from Station 8. And just last week, we had one potential candidate come from Station 22. Um, so just because you think you're far away, go ahead and Google map it and see what your estimated time is because you might be surprised. 
But that said, I do think it's going to be very difficult to get our nine echo dispatch patients to the hospital in time. Looking at February's numbers, I think we're probably going to average somewhere around one, maybe two patients a week that even meet the inclusion and exclusion criteria and can get there within the right time frame. I think more likely what we're going to find is that the patients who are candidates are the ones who undergo cardiac arrest right in front of the crew. Okay. So more likely our 31 deltas or our 6 deltas or the arrests where it's our crews right there who are witnessing the arrest, know the downtime, do immediate bystander CPR. I really think those are going to be the patients that we're going to find have the best outcomes. And I haven't seen the actual checklist yet. I haven't been to day one myself, but is there going to be similar to a stroke alert, STEMI alert, um, what is going to be called in to the hospital? Right now, um, it is very similar. That's a great question. It's very similar to a stroke or STEMI alert where there is a team at the hospital that needs to get activated. And like we talked about, just like with strokes and STEMIs, seconds count. So um, what would be nice is if that initial officer who's on scene and is running the checklist identifies a candidate and has made the decision to go to the hospital with this patient, through AAS base, um, you can say, Rescue 16, we have the eCPR candidate, we're on our way, more to follow. Hmm. And then once you get the patient loaded in the back and get things going, you can call your normal radio report like you would to the hospital. But by giving that initial heads up to AAS base, they can alert the hospital that the patient's coming. And again, we talked about as this soft rollout goes um, over the next couple months as the 7-8's involved, they'll likely be calling the charge nurse at UNM to let them know that they're on the way too. And it sounds like it's important to remember that you know, if the patient codes in the back to, to have a quick notification to the hospital at that point? Absolutely. The more lead time you can give them to get downstairs, get gowned up, get ready in anticipation of the arrival of this patient, the, the better you can do for that patient's timeline. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. Dr. Brody, do you have any closing comments? I do. Um, and first of all, I would certainly echo the the uh, enthusiasm for this. I, I got very interested in ECMO in the last couple of years, and I think this is just a, an amazing thing to be able to offer our community. One thing I just want to reinforce is that um, anyone who's bringing patients in from the field just needs to understand that not everybody that comes in that might appear to meet the inclusion and exclusion criteria um, will end up um, going on, on ECMO. Um, the limitation, one for one thing, I mean, the best case is that we, you know, get the patient resuscitated without it in the emergency department um, after your efforts. Um, the other possibilities are we don't always have the personnel and resources to do this, um, and it's just too complicated to try to like say to the system, wait, we're this for this next two hours we're available, then we're not available for an hour and so forth. So um, we're doing our best to make the this available 24-7, but there's certainly going to be times where we just do not have the capacity, the number of machines, the personnel, or whatever that we need. Um, it might also be that you know another exclusion criteria sort of pops up when we start reviewing charts. Um, if there's family present, you know we certainly try to consent family, and they may not consent. Uh, the this is a big commitment for the for the patient and the facility. The amount of resources that these patients utilize um, for the next you know days or weeks is tremendous. And we only have so many pumps. And so if we put one patient on who's kind of an iffy candidate and you all bring a perfect candidate 
the next day we may not have the capacity. So um, you will you will certainly encounter times where you know you go through all this effort and it just doesn't work out. And I hope people aren't uh, disappointed by that. That's just a it's a great you know process to work through. And I think in the end, when we look back on this in the next year or two, I think we'll see plenty of good outcomes to justify the effort. Any closing thoughts, Dr. Pruitt? Um, I think I just want to say how excited I am to be able to do this. I think it's going to be fantastic for our system. I, in terms of closing thoughts, I just hope everybody remembers this is cool and it's fancy and it's new technology, but really what we need from our crews is just really fantastic BLS. And slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And even as we start to recognize these patients, just remembering the basics and the fundamentals and um, getting these patients to the hospital safely to give them the best chance that they can. Okay, everybody. So keep doing what you're doing. Uh, again, an emphasis on great teamwork, which I think we have in the field, uh, especially on codes. And the best way to be ready for something like this is to study prior to. So get in your, get in your books and study. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Again, this has been episode four of the AFR podcast and look forward to talking to you all in the future.